From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. We live in interesting times, gentlemen, and it's time that we talk about elections. Seems basic stuff, right? But they're, they're, they're a big, big deal, even when they are not perfect. Every year, billions upon billions of dollars go into securing votes, spreading one message, attacking another, ultimately with the aim of getting, quote unquote, your candidate in office. In some countries, like in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, elections are more or less rubber stamp. They're a formality. In other countries, like the U.S., they are hotly contested. They are an industry as much as a political process. And here in the States, it is virtually a guarantee that no matter who wins the presidential election, some part of the population is going to say that it was rigged. I mean, it's crazy. If you look back over the decades, for a long time, for many years, voters seem to kind of trust the official results, the political system. But over the recent decades, more and more people are more and more concerned about the legitimacy of this process. And Part of that is due to the increased availability of information. Part of it is due to the spread of new technologies. The best way to look at it or describe it is this, and it's something I think we had explored in a past episode. It is not that there are more skeletons in democracy's closet. It's just now we're able to turn on more lights to search for them. So as we and all of us listening here in the U.S. approach the presidential elections in November, we were inspired by this anonymous voicemail to dig into the story of elections gone wrong. Perhaps it will be a cautionary tale. So the TV show Narcos, uh, Mexico, and then my own research, I found out that the 1988 uh, Mexican elections were rigged by both parties and according to what I saw, it was for the good of the nation that that's what they said. And I was wondering if that's something that the set up president in the, this next election here in the U.S. It'd be nice to just to look into that. Thanks. Oh, yes. The concept that someone somewhere, specifically in Mexico in 1988, rigged a democratic presidential election. For the good of the nation. Well, you were talking about democracy here, right? The concept that each of us, you, me, everybody we know, that we, living as citizens of a country, can make or could make the best decision for that country about who should lead it, right? That's the, that's the uh, painted lines on the road uh, faith thing that we're kind of going into with this one, right, Ben? Yep. So why should you care about something that happened decades ago in in Mexico. Here are the facts. Presidential elections in Mexico bear a lot of similarities to elections in the U.S., but there are several noticeable differences. Maybe we can start with the similarities. Uh, I'll throw one out there. Mexico has a president. <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely is the first one. Uh, both countries have huge public campaigns. Uh, media blitzes, uh, personal appearances, debates, opinion polls, and talking heads all over the news covering the election. Uh, it's, it's a very, very similar experience to what we see here um, during an election cycle. Uh, not a great show, but I did. it was the first time I really saw what this looks like. The show Weeds, there's a character that becomes the pre- that is the president of Mexico, and you kind of see a lot of the pomp and circumstances surrounding that political process in one of the later seasons of that show that was pretty maligned, but it it was, you know, one of the first times I was aware, okay, this is how it works there. It's very similar to how it is here. And as the caller mentioned, that's also something that you see a bit of in Narcos, which is a superior show. Yes. And 
when, you know, when you're thinking about casting your vote, uh, if you are 18 years or older, you have likely done this before. You go to your designated polling place, you cast your ballot either on paper or electronically, and it is uh, in all likelihood, it, well, we know, that in 1988 in Mexico, the ballots were done by hand. It was a paper ballot. Uh, and, you know, that there's something to that, having a physical paper thing that then gets counted and then your, wherever you live, your local area, all those votes get counted up. And then all of those votes from all the different local areas get counted up. And that's how you win an election or lose one. Yeah. So, so if you were voting in Mexico on election day uh, and you were voting in the U.S. on election day, you, odds are you would have kind of a similar experience, right? Especially in, as you said, Matt, uh, the days of paper voting um, <laughs> back when hanging chads meant something other than, you know, people at Abercrombie and Fitch. But there there are <laughs> significant differences and they make up. They make a big difference here. In some ways, you could argue these are changes that the U.S. could should consider. Uh, first, Mexico's system is younger. The president's powers of office come from the Revolutionary Constitution of 1917. So the first, quote-unquote, modern Mexican president comes to us in 1917. And there's a very, very big difference Unlike a president in the United States, a president in Mexico cannot be re-elected. They cannot be elected twice. You get the one shot. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a longer term. You know, we have a four-year term for a U.S. president. But then, of course, there's so much that goes into the idea of being re-elected. And I think, you know, many folks who criticize the system would argue that that re-election bid largely shapes the policies and the optics of that term and what was accomplished or not accomplished or goals, et cetera. So I, I don't know. I like this idea of a single six-year term uh, and then you're done. Um, and that's called, I believe it's called a pronounced sexy. Ben, or a six-year term? Yeah, that's correct. Sexenio, uh, six-year term. Uh, the main thing is full stop. You Once you were president, even for an abbreviated term as like a caretaker of some sort, you can never run again. That is seen as uh, too much power. Uh, there are other differences as well. Partial, one of the big ones is the day of the week. Here in the U.S., you vote for people on, for some reason, Tuesdays. And in Mexico, elections always occur on Sundays. I kind of like the ring of Super Sundays over Super Tuesdays, personally. The alliteration's got that going for it. Yeah, you know, another major difference here is that in 1988 in Mexico, there was not a pandemic going on. So people actually went out physically to vote. They didn't uh, have to get paper ballots sent to their house or, you know, absentee ballots or do anything online again hampered a bit there by the technological uh, side, but you had to go physically and do this. Oh, and here's the other big thing that we've talked about on this show many a time. In the United States, there are how many presidential parties that can vie for election? Oh yeah, just two. Just two. In Mexico, on the other hand, there are three principal political parties, uh, but the really good thing here, and this is maybe similar to the U.S., there are a bunch of, you know, smaller parties in Mexico where if you think about things like the Green Party or the Libertarian Party, there are multiple parties here in the U.S. as well. They just don't have much power when it comes to uh, being able to secure enough votes to win an election. By design, yeah. And I, I believe we've talked about that before. Uh, the the way the funding works is after uh, as a party in the U.S. If you get a certain portion of the vote, then you get federally matched funding of, of a certain type. Um, it's it's really it's tremendously unreasonably cartoonishly difficult for uh, a third party to break through in the U.S. And again, that's not a f bug; that's a feature. It's very much by design. Um, but Matt, as you said, you know, there, there's this plurality of, of parties in Mexico, and this also goes into how the winner of the election is decided, right? 
Yes, it gets a little complicated when you're thinking about elections in the United States because we have this thing called the electoral college system. Again, we have spoken about this before. And it's it's a bit weird because throughout the electoral college or in within this system, each state has a certain number of these votes. And then when the voting you know, the popular vote comes in from all of the citizens within, let's say, Georgia, depending on the proportion of, you know, popular voting for candidate A versus candidate B is going to depend how many electoral college votes actually get cast for for the president, for the presidential election. And now that here's where it gets really weird. It changes depending on the state you're in, because some states give all the electoral college votes to the winner. Others give a proportional amount of votes to the winner. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the political parties are in charge of the electoral college voters. Right. And off mic, I, I was confused, uh, as many of you may may still be, about the difference between majority and plurality. And uh, Ben made the great point that plurality, in theory, um, allows more cooperation between parties. And our electoral college system is sort of set up to be incredibly divisive between parties. And, and the cooperation just isn't a thing. And it's very much an all or nothing kind of campaign with very little cooperation uh, across the board. And that's sort of been a big issue with our government in general, is this idea of like, you know, communicating across the aisle or whatever. Um, so when I first heard this, I was like, this is interesting. I, I, this seems like a better system. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one of the big differences for how the winner is chosen in the um, episode of Highlander known as presidential elections. In Mexico, uh, the winner is chosen by plurality. In the U.S., the winner is chosen through majority. And as you said, Matt, the electoral college system is a complicated thing by design. It does it, – it, it has good intentions and it functions often to sort of – remove power uh, from from many demographics. Uh, that's that's why, you know, it's weird for outside observers to say, wait, this candidate lost the popular vote. Why are they president? And like, oh, well, we have this whole other vote. We don't get to really vote in it. But, it, you know, that's that's the one that counts. Um, now, I know a lot of people have problems saying that, but uh, there's not many holes you can poke in what I just said. Ben, I, I love that you mentioned uh, best intentions. I think that's going to be a big theme in today's episode that we're going to see popping up and what that actually means. Uh, and, and, you know, where are those intentions coming from? That can make a huge difference. Let's just continue down this train of some of the similarities and differences just between voting and elections in the U.S. versus Mexico. So in the United States here, Our elections take place in November, our presidential elections at least, take place in November, and then whoever wins goes into office and is inaugurated in January of the following year. Now in Mexico, the elections are held in early July, and then whoever wins those elections comes in in December, which is really interesting. It's like getting a bit of an early start on the new year, um, or like being able to establish the office prior to having to really... Uh, begin executing anything. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like it's like becoming a teacher during the summer. So you get your you know you get to do your prep work before the school year starts, as opposed to like starting on day one with zero time to get your ducks in a row. I don't know. That's sort of a silly comparison, but I think it holds. Mm-hmm. Not bad at all. I, I think that's astute. And and the the interesting thing here is, remember we said that. Uh, presidents only get to serve one term. So they're already kind of on the way out, uh, which, uh, you know, by year five, year six, which makes the parties in Mexico, the ones who got the president elected, even more influential. And in this country, in Mexico, the sitting president, whomever they are, whatever their party is, they are banned from endorsing any candidate and they are banned from campaigning with them, at least officially. But think about that. Imagine uh, if you if you live within the U.S. or you, you just watch the news around the time of a U.S. presidential election. Imagine how often you see a sitting president speaking highly of the next person within their party that's in line to take over. Uh, it's so – it's just such a ubiquitous image that goes out there and a way to use existing power to 
to promote the next person. Well, and it carries so much weight, and it's just part of the system. The idea of an endorsement uh, is as as part of the system as you know casting your vote. I mean, it's 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 completely intertwined with the idea of democracy. No one thinks anything negative about the idea of an endorsement, right? I guess what I mean is it's a lever to pull. Uh, in an attempt to maintain the power structures for that party. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of the biggest. It's one one of the biggest switches you can pull. In fact, here in the U.S., it would be extraordinary. It would be unprecedented. Sorry, it would be unprecedented for a sitting president not to endorse, especially you know at the end of their two terms, or they're not running for re-election. It would be bizarre. It would be like we're in the upside down for a sitting president to not uh, endorse the candidate from their party. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are many other differences, you know, especially when you get to the congressional voting levels and nuts and bolts of that, as well as the physical way voting is carried out. But for what we're exploring today, that's what you need to know about the presidency in Mexico and multiple observers will probably assure you that the aspects of the voting system in Mexico are superior to parts of the U.S. voting system. But let's explore a specific example and why it matters today. We'll do this after a word from our sponsor. On July 6th, 1988... Mexico held its scheduled election. This was part of the normal political process. There were three candidates in the front running, each from one of the three, you know, primary uh, political party power sources. It was Carlos Salinas de Gortari, Cuauhtémoc Cardenas, and Manuel Clothier. We're not native speakers, so apologies for any mispronunciations there. But ultimately, here's what happened. The very end of it is that the Ministry of the Interior declared Salinas the winner and said that he had received 50.7% of the vote, 50.7. This was the lowest winning, uh, winning number for a candidate in the entire history of Mexico's election system since it started in 1917. It was just like, just eking past the post, you know, it's like a nose to nose finish there. Yeah, that point seven made all the difference. And that was since the institution of the system in 1917. And so that leads to some questions. Uh, was it rigged? That sure is a narrow margin. It seems like a little bit suspect, perhaps. And it turns out there were some reasons to be suspicious of this. There were problems with the process from the offset. Uh, initial results from around the Capitol um, showed that Mr. Salinas was losing quite badly to the opposition leader, Mr. Cardenas. And people uh, started to claim from those early days that the election was rigged and that Salinas was not the true president. And, you know, it's something that is is pretty common. Uh, We hear it in this country as well. The idea that when things are close, uh, that something is uh, afoot, that there is some sort of foul plays involved. And as I said, plenty of examples in the history of the United States uh, to compare this to. So what's different about this case? Well, the thing that's different is that in this case, we're not just seeing claims that this election was rigged, you know, on internet forums after the fact. We're not looking at claims from the opposition saying that something was wrong um, or pundits who are going on television at, you know, just to to speak poorly about the person that won. No, we actually have somebody that came forward uh, in 2004, a man named Miguel de la Madrid, and he confirmed everything. So the big question is, uh, like, can we trust him, first of all? <laughs> Who is he? Why does he matter? And uh, there's an answer to that, because see, Mr. Madrid... This was the president of Mexico at the time of the election in 1988. So he was the guy sitting on the throne when all of this went down. And he is the guy who has come forward to confirm it. Here's where it gets crazy. So was this vote compromised? Years later, the answer seems to be emphatically yes, 100%. In a uh, fairly lengthy autobiography released in 2004, something it ran about 
850 pages. His former president, Mr. De La Madrid, recounted how he and other government officials who are also associated with his party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, as it's called, uh, they were terrified that the opposition candidate, Cardenas, would win the vote. And so if he, if he won the vote, he would drive their, their hand-picked successor out of office, but he would do something much more uh, dangerous to them than that. He would drive the PRI party out of power. And that meant that they, got, they would get their fingers cut out from a lot of pies that they were in, in business and government likely in criminal activities. I said what I said. And this this is terrifying. Uh, he is so candid about it now. Mr. De La Madrid said when he heard the news about uh, how bad things were going when the people were actually allowed to vote the way they wanted to, he said, I felt like a bucket of ice water had fallen on me. I became afraid that the results were similar across the country and that the PRI would lose the presidency. Notice he doesn't say the presidential candidate would lose the presidency. He says the party would lose the presidency. So we I mean, would what, lose control. Right. So what happened? Yeah, I mean, as poll results started coming in, the Secretary of the Interior told him that the initial results were uh, not looking good for the PRI, um, and the public demanded uh, these returns, according to Madrid himself. Um, and rather than giving those results, the government lied and said the computer system had crashed or there was some kind of fatal error, uh, failure. Uh, and the president of the PRI told Madrid, quote, you have to proclaim the triumph of the PRI. It is a tradition that we cannot break without causing great alarm among the citizens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it it got really weird because I, I don't know if anyone listening can remember back to the 2000 elections when uh, the candidates were George W. Bush and Al Gore here in the United States. And there was great confusion in this country when the media, various media organizations began coming forward and declaring that one of the two men had won with, you know, only a, a, a fairly small or moderate proportion of the votes coming in. But, but all of these media companies were, were using different models to figure out what, well, if we have this proportion of votes at this time, then we can declare this. Um, it just became very strange and, um, Lots of people got it wrong and quickly, but they made those mistakes early. So it felt like that was the reality, you know. But that's, yeah, that's, that's the thing just to, that we have to remember. There's, there's the fog of war, right? And there's the incompetence that can always occur. But then also these are commercial media outlets reporting this. They depend on advertiser dollars and uh, it is, um, it is fundamentally true that they are getting pushed behind, you know, behind closed doors. I, I think of it as like um, you, you were, we were thinking of the right word to like describe shenanigans. Maybe we call it shenaniganosity, right? Both the type <laughs> of the shenanigan and the direction and speed at which it travels. You can trace this stuff. There's a reason that in 2000, Fox News was telling you something very different from what CNN or MSNBC or so on were saying. And the same kind of thing, not exactly the same, but a very similar thing was occurring in 1988 there in, in Mexico in July during this election where the opposition parties as they're, you know, they've got their own teams that are looking at results as any and all communications are happening. And these candidates, so we've got the three candidates, right? One of them is in the PRI party and then the other two are not. The opposition candidates to the PRI are coming forward and saying, hey, we are the winner. Look, it's clear from the voting that's come in thus far. We won. Thank you very much. So everyone's declaring themselves the winner at the same time. 
Right. And so what do you do? Uh, the PRI uh, had to kind of beat them to the punch uh, at the very least. And without any official vote count, the president of the PRI declared his party uh, the winner. Um, and Mr. Madrid writes again in this tell-all kind of bombshell uh, biography, autobiography, quote, as in any emergency, we had to act because the problems were rising fast. There was not a moment for great meditation. We needed agility in our response to consolidate there's this word again that gives me chills, kind of the triumph of the PRI. Oh, and, 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 you know, blaming it on computer malfunction wasn't like some kind of, you know, reach. I mean, the infrastructure responsible for accounting uh, these for these votes had broken down at least two times. Yeah. Under mysterious circumstances, a.k.a. cough, cough, it was shut down, cough, cough, at least twice. Um but technical difficulties are are a good are a good thing to rely on. You know, it's the old dog ate my homework of uh, of voting sometimes, and and it's it, it's fascinating because this this is the point where every minute counts. And you know, when we talk about the greater good here, uh, just to plant a seed for some of our early, our later conversation, it's important to note that. These these guys are practicing um, a psychological problem or a fallacy that's common with every every human being, every every person, which is this idea that what is what I think is good and is best for me, since I'm the main character of my story, is therefore good for everyone. Like guys, I'm the protagonist. So what I want is you should automatically want it. You should care more about me than you care about yourself or other people. Uh, nobody ever ultimately forgives other people for the great sin of not also being them. And in politics, you know, we see this. We see this writ large. Like I, I think it's a really interesting question. That line about like we need to have the triumph of the PRI because. You know, the implication there is that we are then guaranteeing stability for the country. That's something good for things to remain the way they are. Um, it's it's just interesting. It's not like they're, you know, Monty Burns-esque wheedling their fingers around or what is it? What's it called? Steepling their fingers Steepling. and going, yeah, and going, you know, yes, let's let it burn and then kick puppies down the street. They They think they're doing good. It's, that's right. And that's something we were talking about off, you know, before we started rolling today, this idea of the greater good, this idea of for the good of the nation. Like, if you truly believe your ideological stance, then why wouldn't you think, you know, keeping your party in power is for the greater good? Uh, and, and it could well be with good intentions and not some kind of, you know, we just want to screw over the other guy and, and, and it be for some sort of nefarious reason. Not to say that there aren't nefarious reasons because ideology is a slippery slope and oftentimes people believe things that are not for the greater good. But if they do believe it, then that's a powerful thing, belief. So, yeah, as far as they were concerned, this notion of protecting def- Defending this historical triumph of the PRI uh, was with the best intentions and as far as they were concerned for the greater good of the nation. Yeah, so they did it. They uh, declared they were the winners. And uh, it kind of worked. We'll tell you all about it after a word from our sponsor. And we return. So it's not a conspiracy theory. The acting government of Mexico, despite all the laws <laughs> against endorsing or, you know, tipping the scales, uh, he conspired with his entire crew, his entire cohort and his colleagues to rig the election. The world's media was aware of the controversy at the time. The immediate aftermath of this is not was not some kind of arcane secret to international observers. Uh, there's a journalist, Storer H. Rowley, who was writing for the Chicago Tribune at the time, who um, the article's really interesting to read because Rowley spins the first few paragraphs basically saying, you know, Mexico is so crooked. Like, it's not a spoiler. The the elections have always, like, it's it's like part of the culture of Mexico to, to, to rig elections, which is, you know, not, not the most helpful way to lead into this story. Yeah, the the quote that he pulls right in that first paragraph, Ben, of about how this the stuff that was happening in this 
presidential election would, quote, make even an old-time Chicago machine politician proud. (laughs) That's just like, whoa, exactly. Yeah, and then Rowley writes, vote rigging is a, quote, time-honored tradition, Uh, but these 1988 elections go a step further, and then we have the quote about um, the kind of vocabulary and jargon that sprang up just about this election and what people were doing, kind of the way that you heard – hearing gone terms during U.S. elections like the hanging chads. It's all about the hanging chads. There were versions of this in 1988 in Mexico. Oh, man. Yeah, this is this one really got me. Um, uh, The idea of something called vote tacos, uh, which would be a single ballot folded over itself and then stuffed with 20 other ballots that are pre-marked pre-filled out for the ruling party candidate. Um, And then something called turtleism, which is the deliberate delaying of the opening of the polls in order to discourage folks from the opposite uh, voting party uh, to vote because of long lines, hoping to just kind of have them kind of throw their hands up and and go home. Uh, And then back to what you mentioned, Ben, about, you know, whether or not they purposefully shut down some of these digital systems, electronic systems, this notion of cybernetic fraud, the government's use of computers to mold election data at will, Um, whether that's just poll data or actually manipulating the voting record. uh, What do you think, Ben? Combination of the two? I mean, I'm the worst person to ask, but I, I think we're all we're all kind of on the on the same page here that these these tactics uh, they really happened, right? Um, and we have to remember, you know, 1988 cybernetic fraud was a very forward facing term. You know what I mean? Like uh, that's cyber. That's crazy. That's before. Remember in the 90s when everything was touted as being digital. This was like very um, almost space age, bleeding edge technology. And at, at the time, the other political candidates had their, you know, each of whom declared themselves the winners. Uh, they had their own statements as widespread voter manipulation was coming out. Cardenas, uh, who was a National Democratic Front candidate, said that if any, if any of this stuff was true, and if it was all true, it would technically be the equivalent of a coup d'etat. And he's not wrong. He's he's technically correct. And there were all kinds of allegations coming forward from varying segments of the population in Mexico who who had very specific allegations. And you know, if you look at if you look at that Chicago Tribune article that we mentioned above, you can see this stuff actually written out. Um, they would come forward with things like what was known as carouseling or what was known as a carousel, where groups of PRI officials, government employees, would go together in a group. Uh, it would be prearranged with the people running the polling place, and they would vote once at that polling place. Let's call it A. Then they would go together and vote at polling place B. And the people running that polling station would let them in too. And it was just kind of a known thing that these this crew was coming through to vote multiple times. And if I'm not mistaken, that's similar to some of the Tammany Hall kind of corrupt voting practices that, that we, we talked about earlier in terms of like a lot of similarities between the two. Um, and, and one way that this was enabled was the use of uh, this particular ink. Like, you know how like if you take your kid to Chuck E. Cheese, they make you get a stamp uh, on your hand and then one on your kid's hand. And then when you leave, they got to compare the stamps. Maybe people who don't have kids don't know this, but it's a thing. I was impressed when I first experienced it. Uh, and that way you can't take someone else's kid. Uh, in that same way, they had a system of you using this ink that wouldn't wash off um, to prove that you've only voted once. Um, and someone named Catalina Preser, um, who was a housewife and national action representative, who was a poll observer, uh, noticed that they wouldn't let them use their own ink. They, they would supply this ink that would wash off more easily so that they could, you know, get get away with voting more than once, even though, to your point, Ben, there certainly were observers that were in on it as well. Um, and then you had something called alchemy laboratories, which sounds desperately sinister. Right. You gotta love the name. Alchemy laboratories um, describes the practice of creating secret computer terminals to 
to function as an access point, a weak link in the transit from uh, a voting station to the government tabulation center. So you could pop in from, you know, from point A to point B, you could pop in in that space between them, and then you could alter things to make it a little bit more pro-PRI or a lot of bit more pro-PRI. And these are, these are just three of the specific allegations. These are three that were later backed up with very compelling evidence. But despite all of this, the political machine that the PRI had built rolled on. It was undeterred. Salinas became the president of Mexico, and the world media eventually shifted its ever-mercurial focus to other affairs. Well, wait, you might be saying. Isn't there evidence of this now? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the president at the time fully confessed uh, to, to what happened and to the fact that this was rigged, but in the in the years after that election, something very interesting happened. There's, of course, internal investigation and so on. Uh, and as these concerns are rising, they won't go away domestically in Mexico. Just three years later, in 1991, the Mexican Congress orders all of the physical ballots of the 1988 election to be burned. So... You heard that right. <laughs> yeah, they literally took all the actual votes without recounting them or examining them or so on, and they set them aflame. So there goes the proof. It's incredible. Because we all know, everyone listening knows that when voting is electronic, no matter how it's done, that information, that data, no matter how encrypted, can be manipulated. If you are intelligent and have trained yourself and are good with systems, you can manipulate that information. And now, especially if it's basic information coming from paper ballots, that's just recording how many people voted for who, and you've got three names on that ballot, and people are using ink, or, you know, um, chads. They're not using chad. They're, they're using ink in this system, at least from what I understand. Um, if you're getting rid of the paper ballots, the only thing, the actual receipts, if you get rid of those, you can never prove that the data on a computer that's stored there is going to be real or not. Or, or it's certainly much more difficult. I mean, there are like computer forensic specialists that can, you know, see if things were, you know, there's, there's certain like little markers and way, but yes, a hundred percent. Well, in the end, in the end, it's whatever was inserted, whatever was put into that machine the first time, right? I mean, that's what you're going to find. And even if you, even if it's been manipulated, I'm just saying like, that's the best you can do now is get the initial. It's the very definition of a paper trail, right? I mean, it gives you something physical that you can look at and say, see, we, we have them here. Uh, but they didn't have them <laughs> because they burned them. Uh, well, and they did it before their party even had the potential of losing power. Right. So, <laughs> Think about that. The midway point, it's three years into a six-year term. There are three more years that'll pass uh, in which the, this new cycle can deviate. But surely, you might be asking, surely there were consequences. I mean, come on. This is a huge country. This is a country that is at the forefront of so many things. Surely someone is going to, you know, at least get scapegoated, right? Like whenever whenever politicians get caught here, uh, it, it's kind of a, a hazard of the job working as an underling that one day you may be on that stone chair. One day you may be the sacrifice at the altar to save your boss. But get this, there were no legal ramifications, which is <laughs> none. Even even when uh, even in two thousand four, two thousand five, when Madrid comes out and says, "Yeah, we rigged it," uh, his his old colleagues turned on him, and they were like, ah, "Did we though?" Yeah, they they completely uh, discredited him, um, characterized him as being some kind of bitter old man. Possibly even used some little ageist tactics against him because he was seventy one uh, at the time. But yeah. Uh, they also trotted out the old trustee that his con comments were being taken out of context, which is 
basically like gaslighting the public, saying, no, 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 he, he, he said what he said, but you don't understand what he really meant, and then didn't give him the opportunity to respond, uh, or, you know, just kind of buried it. Uh, so it really kind of makes you wonder what, what's, what went on in subsequent elections, what's, what's going on right now. It's kind of like when Conan O'Brien uh, keeps trying to say that he said he takes he steals children's shoes and nails them to walls of his closet uh, was a figure of speech, right? <laughs> exactly the same thing, Ben. <laughs> it's the worst Easter egg we've ever done. <laughs> I love that you put that in, though, because I just heard him talk about that. Well, it's, it, it can be used in a different <laughs> way, too, like, you know— with our current president, he'll make comments. Uh, they'll be taken a certain way. And then he'll come back and try to pick up the pieces by saying, oh, no, you took what I said out of context. And then, But ultimately, it's a, it's a form of spin that he's doing himself with this megaphone that he has in, in the form of Twitter and this direct line to the public. So he's not even filtering it through PR. He himself is saying, no, 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 you don't understand what I meant. I meant this. And it's a way of potentially being able to say whatever he wants and then have uh, an out uh, later. So this isn't quite the same thing, but it's, it's, it's not that far off. I would just say it's astonishing to, to me, not to make it personal, but it's, it is astonishing that this is the first I'm hearing about this when our, our friend left that voicemail. It was the first time I had learned about the 1988 presidential election, perhaps because I didn't take enough government classes or something in my educational pursuits, but maybe I would have heard about it. But dang, I wonder how many people out there listening right now knew about this because it feels surreal that this could happen. It's also, it's massively disquieting to see uh, how many contemporaneous quotations exist from voters in Mexico at the time who are saying, look, the PRI is going to do something. They're going to win. I'm going to vote against them. But they're going to win. And it turned out that they were right. And and I think you guys are making fantastic points. It makes you wonder about other elections. We don't talk about it in this country as often as we should. We're very fortunate. I think we talked about it a little bit when it's monologuing on a, um, on a previous episode about North Korea. But the peaceful passage of power, the peaceful transfer is an enormously vulnerable time for any country. And we have, as a country in the U.S., been very, very fortunate. Uh, these things, you know, uh, the, these things end in war uh, more often than, you know, a lot of people would be comfortable believing. That's because democracy is not a static institution, the house is haunted, and it always has been. It's never been a safe institution either. As a resident of any country that allows voting, you're probably often told it's your right to do so, right? But it's not quite your right. It's your responsibility. And there are a lot of people who say, well, I don't vote because it doesn't matter. Because, you know, uh, whomever I vote for, there's always going to be something like the PRI, and they're always going to come in, and they're always going to win, right? Um, but that does not absolve you of that responsibility. That's like saying, you know what? I got up this morning. I'm not going to make my bed because at some point in the future, I'll just have to make it again. That's not the point. The point of this, the, the difference between making your bed and voting, I guess, I'm going to ride this horrible analogy into the sunset, is it is a voting is a responsibility that numerous powers Wherever you live, numerous powers do not want to see you exercise this this thing. Why? Why? Ask yourself, like, why? Why does the Mexican election of 1988, three decades, more than three decades from now, why does it seem like a parable? Why does it seem like a cautionary tale? Why is election day not a holiday in the United States? Why does voting seem? I don't know about you guys. I I think we're you know, we're, we're not the dullest crayons in the box, right? We can figure stuff out, but the rules for voting are so Byzantine. There's so many opportunities for things to go wrong. Is it by accident and competence? Is it by design? Like what? I mean, why do you guys think this is the case? Why is voting not a holiday here? Well, I don't know, Ben, but you got me uh, thinking I really need to go make up my bed uh, as soon as we finish this podcast, uh, both as a real thing that I should do and as, as your analogy, which holds true. Because you're right, it's, it's a maintenance thing. You can't just lean on your laurels and be like, okay, it worked once, now I don't ever have to do it again. Or, okay, I did it once. You got to p- 
police it yourself. You have to be aware. You have to pay attention and not settle for anything less than openness of democracy. Uh, and it's not always easy to do. And we're living in a time where it feels like it's maybe even slipping away even more. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I would just join you, you both of you gentlemen in urging folks just to pay attention and, and don't, don't give up in the process just because you don't think it's working for you all the time because it might not happen overnight, but it's definitely something that you have to kind of keep, keep at and keep after uh, to, to make work or to at least exercise your part of it working. Okay. I got two things. Just the concept that we outlined earlier in the episode that in Mexico you vote on a Sunday and in the United States you vote on a Tuesday and we live in countries that are capitalist and based on people working during work days a lot of times to make money, to then pay taxes, to then support the government. And you vote on the people that you want to run the government, but just for us to do it on a Tuesday versus even if it's not a holiday, Ben, if it's just on a weekend, I can see that being very beneficial for a large portion of people. However, if it's on a weekend, then all of the people who work in restaurants, all of the people you know who work in uh, service industry and hospitality, I mean, they're not going to have an easier time voting if it's on a Sunday. So basically, you've kind of like reconvinced me that it absolutely should be a holiday the way we have bank holidays or any other holiday where that's all you do that day. That's it. That's it. And there's a lot being made of the legality or illegality of mail-in votes. I think that was a big thing that, you know, was fact-checked by Twitter that, no, it is perfectly legal to mail in your vote um, and to do an absentee ballot, et cetera. And, you know, the very fact that there's rhetoric around trying to demonize the practice of doing a mail-in ballot seems to be part of this whole rigging the system situation. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? It's been a big topic of debate here in, in the United States uh, of, of late. The thing is, part of it goes back to, I would say, kind of decentralization of the voting process, the fact that it's state by state. The fact that some people who can vote in one state, felons, for example, may not be able to vote in another. The, those kind of things inherently mean that the circumstances, state by state, are not equal in this regard. And when they are not equal in this regard, then that means that people are, I, I wouldn't say necessarily being disenfranchised, but people are not getting the same fair shot at voting and making their voice heard that people in other states are. Um, this, I, I mean, this is profoundly important. We do have systems like early voting, right? Absentee voting and so on. Um, the primary objection now, the cause du jour as we approach November in this country, seems to be, uh, in this cycle, the idea of mail-in voting. Um, the opponents of it, correct me if I'm wrong here, the opponents of it say it provides an opportunity for voter fraud, right? Um, and then the proponents of it say, uh, you know, I would like to vote without having to risk getting fired. Legally in this country, an employer does have to allow you to vote, to go vote. But <laughs> how on earth is that enforced, right? And when? Uh, you know, there, there's also a pandemic going on. So if you're, you can ask people to risk some time out of their day to vote as an educated voter. But if you are putting them in a position where you're forcing them to expose themselves to a potentially fatal infection, I mean, that's that's not something, there's not anything in the Constitution that says you must risk your life to vote. Um, so it could lead to self-selecting disenfranchisement. I mean, the one, to your point, Noel, the big thing about mail-in voting, the two big ideas at loggerheads here are the idea that um, voting is important in this country and we should therefore make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to voice their opinion. Um, and then the, uh, the thing opposed to that is the idea that someone will make, what, thousands or hundreds of thousands of uh, fake ballots and put those in. But that would take 
I, I think we walked through it before. That would take so much work for such a, a small return. You would have to be super strategic about it. You would have to, I, I don't know. It, it seems, I'm not going to say it's made up concern because there are cases of voter fraud, but it seems to be a concern that is being exploited and misrepresented in the discourse today. Well, it's also like not, not you know, let's go beyond disenfranchisement to disenchanted I guess. If you're already feeling, you know, like, why bother? And then you're inconvenienced to the point of feeling like you have to go out to the polls and risk your life and your health to vote, you're probably going to stay home. Uh, and that's something that I think is being exploited as well, that level of disenchantedness toward the process and this uh, pandemic and potentially getting an outcome by saying, oh, no, 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 no mail-ins. You got to go. You got to go in person. When the president himself didn't do that, uh, he, he, he mailed his vote in uh, and drove past the precinct where he could have voted in person, which has been a historical thing that presidents have done uh, and made a you know big kind of PR move out of it for whatever the you know reasoning behind it is. It is a thing that we've always remember. I always remember seeing the president go to the ballot box and vote for himself. You know, that's the thing. Maybe if you are to, the, to that enormously important point about disenchantment, maybe if you are disillusioned, disenchanted, well, first off, you have every right to be. Um, maybe if you are, think about this. I, I once tried to explain to someone who is very anti-voting, um, I once tried to explain the most realistic, on-the-ground, selfish, self-motivated reason to vote. Even if you don't care about other people, here's where you vote. It is you buying the right to complain for another four years. It is you, it, you now, by, because you voted, because in some minute, infinitesimal way, you, you tried to do something. So now you can talk about it. If you didn't try to vote, then, uh, why, why are you, why are you pretending like you care in year two? You know what I mean? Cause you didn't care that day you had the chance to do something about whatever your problem is. And, and that, that sounds cold and brutal. Um, but it, but it is true and it, it should be a motivating factor. And of course, voting is like the, the bottom of the barrel kind of thing. You know, you can get active with your community. You can vote in municipal elections. You can make your voice heard at town hall meetings. But of course, then it becomes an issue of time, right? Because to your point, Matt, there is a capitalist society. Um, eventually, your employer is probably going to say, look, you can't keep going to these comptroller meetings. <laughs> you have a job. What even is a comptroller? I'm kidding. It's a cliche at this point to not know what a comptroller is. It's just the most esoteric sounding job. It's something to do with like, it's like being a treasurer. I don't really know still. Oh, Matt, uh, Matt and I figured this out. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an accountant of a, of a type, yeah. right? Yeah, it was a financial thing. Yeah, yeah got it. <laughs> yeah, man. Those are important. Uh, I, I, Gosh, okay, just in we're talking about all this stuff, I would say go find the old clip of George Carlin talking about choosing whether or not to stay at home and uh, family-friendly show uh, pleasure oneself versus uh, going in and voting, uh, just choosing between those two things. I would listen to that clip from George Carlin. Uh, it's, a, it's pretty it's, – it's, it, yeah, it's kind of what Ben was saying basically. Um, so what I would, what I would just note here is that this thing that occurred in 1988 in Mexico, where an election was just kind of stolen, just, it just kind of happened, uh, through official terms by people in power. You know, the, the question for me then is, well, what happens to the, to those people who were in power when this is just kind of an open thing now? You can look at articles on Univision.com and you can see this election being talked about. You can see it being talked about with relation to the most recent presidential election that occurred in, I believe, 2018, where one of the officials, a man named uh, Manuel Bartlett, who was a part of that 1988 election, he has actually been appointed to one of the, you know, at one of the higher administration levels within the sitting government by the then president elect 
um, I, I believe it's Obrador who was elected in 2018. So you can see where even if you're an official who took part in something like this, if you're still on the same team as the people <laughs> that maintain power, you're going to get to continue playing, basically. Yeah. Hey, you know what that reminds me of? Such a tangent. Uh, one of the guys who got locked up for the Enron scandal is not only out of prison, but he's getting back into the energy sector in a big way. He's super pumped about it. Uh, and Is he going to do asteroids? Oh, God, who knows? Manuel Bartlett, though, I'm so glad you mentioned that specific name. He was the, uh, he was the president of the Federal Election Commission in 1988, the person who kind of like heralds the official decision. And uh, then he was appointed, you know, fast forward 2018, um, as you said, he was appointed the director of Mexico's Federal Electricity Commission. So, you know, he's not handling elections anymore, at least. But uh, <laughs> computers need electricity. <laughs> That's where you can manipulate the vote. <laughs> so is this a, is this a case of um, one bad institutional apple? Or is this a cautionary tale that isn't told as often as it should be? Is this just one of many examples? If you are someone in the U.S. who does vote, uh, in, you know, regardless of what degree you find yourself participating, um, then now is the time to go go check your voter registration. Because depending on what state you live in, you might be surprised uh, to find whether or not you're on the rolls. This happens any number of times for any number of reasons. Not Again, not all, you know, supervillain conspiratorial stuff. Uh, some just pure incompetence or some just the hazard of a machine with millions of moving parts. But it is, it is in your best interest because even if you don't think your vote counts – you don't want to be someone on social media in like 2022 talking about something and someone asks you if you voted and you say you didn't because that will remove what people will see as your right to have an opinion. And we're not talking about the, the three or four of us or you listening now. We're talking about the people you talk to later. Put your money where your mouth is. That's right. And if you do want to find out what your registration is or what your status is as a voter within the U.S., if you have a search engine, you can find it very easily. There will be a .gov website for your state in all likelihood. There's one for our state and several others that I just spot checked where you can just type in a few things about your uh, your info. It's usually your date of birth, your name, and where you are, what county you're in, and you'll be able to find it. So we want to know what you think, not just about elections in general, not just about the future of elections in, in your country or abroad. We'd like to hear specific examples from your neck of the global woods. What, what, what shenanigans were about? Uh, you know, what, what specific instances do you recall? And were there, uh, were there specific concrete ramifications? Because the people who stole an election in Mexico not too long ago, quite possibly while uh, us and, and your fellow listeners were alive, those people got away with it. Those people got away with stealing an election, uh, and, and that's that's just baffling. That's uh, I, I would assume it's more difficult than, say, stealing a candy bar or a car, um, but, you know, maybe we just have to give it the old college go. And what, what happens when you, like, like, let's say this is acknowledged unequivocally. We find this out. About our government, this happened. Do you render every decision the illegitimate government made over the course of their tenure, like, null and void? Like, I, there's, there's really no uh, historical precedent for this. Uh, and their choice uh, in Mexico was just to pretend it never happened. <laughs> well, Uni Univision makes just a really good point of, what really occurred when they stole the election, the PRI, is that they pushed back by six years the true instatement of democracy within Mexico, basically, is what they were saying. Um, and that maybe that's not the full truth, because who's to say the elections prior to that were also stolen in some way? But but still, it it kind of gives you that feeling then. Well, if that one wasn't real, and we were all made to believe that it was real, then there's no way to prove that the other ones were right or legit. 
It's just a, an eroding of trust, I think. And we want to know what you think. Uh, you can write to us in all the usual places on social medias or where Conspiracy Stuff, Conspiracy Stuff Show. Uh, you can join our Facebook group, Here's Where It Gets Crazy. You can also, uh, should the spirit so move you, find us as individuals. I am at Ben Bolin HSW on Twitter. I am, in a burst of creativity, at Ben Bolin on Instagram. I am at How Now Noel Brown, uh, just hanging out on Instagram actively. I'm on Twitter, but I just kind of lurk, so I don't even throw that one out there. And I'm Matt Frederick underscore iHeart, I think. Maybe you'll find it or not. And if you don't want to use Instagram or any of those other socials, you can give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. Give us a call. You can leave a message. You'll hear Ben's voice. He'll let you know what to do. Um, and <laughs> once you do like, leave that message, it'll be about three minutes. Then you can call back again if you want to, if that wasn't enough time. Um, feel free to give us a call anytime. It just goes straight to voicemail, and all three of us have access to it. So we will be listening. And if you don't want to do any of that stuff, why not just send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.